0: story is told of Jim and Edna who were both patients in a mental hospital. One day while they were walking past the hospital swimming pool, Jim suddenly jumped into the deep end, sank to the bottom of the pool and just sat there until he lost his breath. Edna promptly jumped in to save him and she swam to the bottom. She pulled him out, gave him CPR and saved his life. When the medical director became aware of Edna's heroic act, he immediately ordered her to be discharged from the hospital as he now considered her to be mentally stable. When he went to tell Edna the news, he said, Edna, I've got good news and bad news. He says, the good news is is that you're being discharged since you were able to rationally respond to a crisis by jumping in and saving the life of another patient. And I've concluded that your act displays sound-mindedness said, the bad news, however, is that Jim, the patient you saved, hung himself right after you saved him with his bathrobe belt in the bathroom. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but he is dead. Edna replied with a smile on her face, and she said, he didn't hang himself. I just hung him there to dry. (laughs) Hey, you know what? And never forget, you don't pay to get in here. <clears throat> Tapes free, CDs free. Despite everything's free now, you get the guy you go. Wow, what a high standard that y'all of a sudden you're setting. <laughs> this this pa- this past week, I had an opportunity to, um, and you'll tell it again and again this week that other people, you know, I know how you people are, you know, you're, that that hypocrisy just reeking of it. This past week, I had an opportunity to speak at a men's conference, and uh, they were on a real tight schedule, and um, they, they had everything kind of outlined by the minute, and I had so many minutes to speak, and they had a table in the front, and, um, and as my time was winding down, a guy in the front would hold up a card that would have like a two on it, you know, two minutes to go. Then he, then he held up a one on it, which, you know, one minute to go. Then he held up minus three. <laughs> And then, and then he held up, you know, a picture of a gun and a noose. And so that's what it reminded me of this story, you know. And the point is, is that, you know, sometimes things aren't as they first appear. And that's why a careful examination of the facts are always in order before one should come to any conclusion regarding a matter. And today we're going to begin a new series of messages found in a gospel record of the life of Jesus Christ. The account was written, as we shall see so that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught, so that you might know the exact truth, that you would know the truth about that which you have been taught. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me in your Bibles to the gospel of Luke where we'll start our study by examining the first four verses at this point, which is actually one long introductory sentence Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 1. We read these words Inasmuch <clears throat> as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. If ever a man wrote a book filled with good news for everybody, Dr. Luke is that man. You know, his key message is found in Luke 19, verse 10, where we read, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. This book, therefore, is for all people because all mankind is hopelessly lost in and of ourselves. Luke presents Jesus Christ as the compassionate Son of God who came to live among sinners, to love them and help them and ultimately die and be raised again. In this gospel, we meet individuals as well as crowds. We meet women and children as well as men, poor people as well as rich people and sinners along with saints. You know, it is, as I've mentioned, a book for everybody because Luke's emphasis is on the universality of Jesus Christ and his salvation You know, it's in Luke chapter 2 that the angel announced, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Historically, Luke begins his gospel before the other synoptic gospels. Heaven has been silent for over 400 years. And the angel Gabriel then breaks through the blue to announce the birth of John the Baptist. But before we look at that event, Luke in his introduction states the purpose of his writing. And I want to go through these first four verses as an overview. The Gospel of Luke was written in 60 A.D. And by this time, many had written about the life of Christ. He says, and as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and the servant, servants of the word have handed them down to us. I mean, if you can imagine the number of people who were writing about what they had heard, what they had seen, what was going on at this particular day. Later, the gospel, in the Gospel of John, John would write, if you've got your Bible, flip to the end of the Gospel of John. And notice that in John chapter 20... <clears throat> John writes, he says in verse, uh, verse 30, this is right after Jesus appeared to Thomas who had doubted that he had been resurrected and said, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side in verse 27, and be not unbelieving, but be believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, have you believed? Well, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. He goes on to say many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The very last verse of this gospel, the next chapter, tells us in verse 25 of chapter 21. He says, and there are also many other things, and there are also many other things which Jesus did which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. It gives us a good understanding of the demand for information regarding the life and the work of Jesus Christ. Back to Luke in those first four verses, two words jump out immediately as you go through it. And I circled them or underlined them when I was going through this on my particular study. But the first word that jumped out was the word eyewitness. He says, just as those in verse 2 who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. The, The word eyewitness in the original language combines two words which together meant to see for yourself. It's a medical term which means to make an autopsy. So the gospel of Luke in many ways is like an autopsy conducted by Luke who now presents his results for all of us to consider. He's saying, I examined it as I would to examine a corpse, so to speak, to determine and discover what it was that caused the death of this person. And I went into great detail to analyze it and to look at it and to discover it. And what he was saying was, come and look for yourself at my results. It's open to you. The wonderful thing about the Christian faith is that God, in everywhere that you turn, He challenges us to see for ourselves, to examine the facts, to look at the record, to open it up, to study it, to see that everything that God tells us is true, that the Word of God is trustworthy and reliable. Have you ever ever wondered or, or been asked, you know, how do you know that what you read in the Bible is truth and not a lie? You know, everything that we do here is teaching from the Word of God. So we're all starting with a very basic premise, and the premise is that everything that's taught from the Word of God is truth because we believe in the trustworthiness and the reliability and the accuracy of the Word of God. Now, when we go out into the world and we're dealing with others, we have to somehow or another help them to understand the credibility of the Word of God or the Bible, because you know, I mean there was a day in my life when I was skeptical and someone would quote the Bible, the first thing i thought of was well what makes you think it's a credible source if you're going to quote the bible we have to be on the same page that we both believe that the bible is the inspired written word of god otherwise we're having a conversation that's like this you're quoting from the bible because you believe it to be trustworthy and the person that's here and it goes you know what i'm not convinced that the bible because here's what you hear you know what it's just a, it's just the, the opinion of men It's just a collection of men. It's just other men's opinions. They had an opinion. I've got an opinion. You've got an opinion. Everyone has an opinion. But the difference is this. Not every opinion is equally valid. Just as Dr. Luke opens up and says, I want to show you the evidence for why I believe this person died. And here's the autopsy report. It would be absolute ignorance for anyone to go and say, Well, you know what, Doc? That's just your opinion. I have an opinion, you have an opinion. The difference is that person's opinion is educated based upon evidence, empirical evidence that's objective versus your subjective opinion that may have its foundation and basis in nothing but nonsense. This is what I think. Oh, so what? Why You know, convince me that what you think is accurate and then I'll listen to you or convince me why you believe that what you believe has more credibility than what I believe. And so what Luke is doing, he's saying, look, you know what, this is open to everybody. Here's the facts. Here's the evidence. Here's my data. You know, here's what what I've concluded based on what I saw. And the key word that he uses, this word eyewitness, has to do with the fact that, you know what, how do we know that the historical records that are found in the Bible are accurate? In other words, that skeptic that you'll run into at your, at your place of business or maybe in your family, or in your neighborhood, community, whatever it is, your friend at school, that skeptic is basically saying to you, calling you out and saying, I challenge you to prove to me why I should believe that the Bible is the written word of God. Why the Bible is trustworthy. Why the Bible is reliable. Why the Bible is accurate. And what Luke is doing is saying, fine, you know what? We can do that. You know, and here's the answer for that. And many of us who who have a tendency to be in communities or or, or places where we share our faith, this is an answer that you need to know, that I need to know, so that we can articulate our faith in a manner that, you know what, we need to be prepared. Peter writes to sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in our heart. To set him aside, always prepared to give an answer or defense for the hope that is within us. We have to be able to explain why we believe what we believe. If we're going to make an impact in our culture, and you're going to make an impact in those who claim to have no faith, then you have to know, and I have to know, how am I going to explain this to them in a way that will capture their attention? And the answer is very simple. There are certain tests that are applied to all historical literature to determine accuracy and reliability. For example, one of the things that I like to ask people is that, oh, you know what? Well, how do you know the Civil War in America actually took place? I mean, because there isn't anybody that I know who lived through it and was there at the time to eyewitness it. It's not a scientific experiment that you can duplicate in a laboratory. It's a historical event that you have to have some credibility as to knowing whether or not it has happened. Like there are people that are out there trying to deny the Holocaust ever took place. Well, you know, it's very difficult to do when there are people who actually live through it that can tell in great detail exactly those things that they endured and suffered and that they saw with their own eyes. The further we get away from an event and those eyewitnesses no longer exist, then we switch to the historical uh, evidence that we have here. And a military historian, C. Sanders, lists and explains three basic principles of historiography. Three tests that are applied to all historical documents to determine accuracy and reliability. The first one is bibliographical text. Uh, test the second is internal evidence, and the third is external evidence. Those are three tests that are applied. All historians apply these three tests to determine whether an event actually happened in a moment in past history. And for our purposes, the same te- the same tests have to apply to the Bible. But for our purposes today, I want to concentrate and focus our attention on that word eyewitness. Dr. Louis Gottschalk, former professor of history at the University of Chicago, outlines his historical method in a guide used by many for historical investigation. He points out that the ability of the writer to or the witness to tell the truth is helpful to the historian to determine credibility. Listen to that. The ability to tell the truth is related to the witnesses' nearness both geographically and chronologically to the events recorded. The New Testament accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus were recorded by men who had either been eyewitnesses themselves or who related the accounts of eyewitnesses of the actual events or teachings of Jesus. So in the first gospel that we see, Luke tells us that, you know what, I'm talking about questioning and examining the eyewitness accounts of those who were actually with Jesus. And I've compiled this information. You can examine it and look at it. Luke also, inspired by the Spirit of God, writes the book of Acts. And if you've got your Bibles, turn to that because you'll notice that he introduces, and there's the same man that he writes to in the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, and we'll get to him in a second. But the first account he writes, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, those apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Dr. Luke's personal friends were the apostles whom Jesus Christ appeared to after his suffering, after his crucifixion, after his death. He appeared to them alive by many convincing proofs. How convincing were those proofs? They were so convincing that 11 of these 12 men went to their deaths claiming two things. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and we saw him raised from the dead those were two undeniable facts that they knew to the point where they said, you know what? You can kill me if you want, but the end of the day is this. I'm not worried about dying because I know that I will live again for I'm confident of this very thing that he who is absent from the body will be present with the Lord to those who have come to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So if you want to kill me, that's no big deal because as Paul said to the Philippians, you know what? I'm torn between two worlds. One is I know that when I die, I'll be with my savior again. But on the other hand, I know that There is a purpose and a reason for me to be here to pass that baton of information about the gospel of Jesus Christ to a next generation or a generation of people who have not heard that God loves them and has provided a remedy for their sin. He said, you know what? But if I die, man, I'm going to be with heaven. I'm confident of that. That's the teaching of Jesus Christ in those times that they were together. So he was, you know, torn between two. I can't wait to die. And yet at the same time, I'm glad that I'm living because I got a purpose and a reason for being here. What's your purpose? What's your purpose in being here? This side of the grave, this side of eternal life. Well, you know what? The purpose goes beyond just, you know what, getting married and having children. The purpose goes beyond just, you know, finding a good job or getting an education. The purpose goes beyond trying to accumulate material things that Jesus said, you know, a rust destroys and thieves break in into steal. The purpose goes beyond much greater than that. There's an eternal purpose and significance, and there is no greater purpose and significance than to, to be a messenger, an ambassador, a proclaimer of the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are lost and on their way to hell. There is no greater purpose in life than that, and everything else pales in comparison. The times that I will look back on in my life are the times that God has used us to make an impact, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and men and women have come to faith and and were transformed and born again from above by the will of God because he used you and he used me as a messenger of the greatest news that anyone could ever hear. All the rest of the stuff, you know what? It all just burns up. But that's our eternal purpose and significance. And by doing so, the greatest purpose of all God's people is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. To bring glory to God. How do we do it? By being obedient and sharing that message with the world. We're ambassadors for Christ. That God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. See, and as we look at this thing, what, what we're being told is that Peter, for example, wrote in Second Peter 1:16, "For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty." We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration saw Jesus transformed before them. And they were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Jesus Christ. A glimpse of His glory that we see. That as Stephen was being stoned to death in the book of Acts, and he looked up into heaven, he said, Father, forgive them. He saw Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God, finished and completed in everything that He has done, the work of redemption. He saw Him in His glory and His majesty. And he saw Him as He is. We all need a glimpse of the glory of God. I did a chapel not too long ago on what the presence of God does to a person who who is there in the presence of God, spends time in God's presence. Moses, when he was in the presence of God, the Bible says his face lit up like just a spotlight on his face as he came down in the presence of God. They knew that he was in the presence of God because the glory of God just lit his face up. I think of Daniel and the countenance of Daniel and how his, the world around him looked at him and went, man, there's something different about this guy. There's a spirit about him that draws me to him, attracts me to him, because there's something there. There's joy and there's peace and there's assurance and confidence. You know, we need to become men and women who spend time in the presence of God, in the word of God in prayer, so that when we go out into the world, people look at our life and say, there's something so attractive about you. What is it? I was in the presence of God. The Spirit of God indwells every one of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, death on the cross, and the power of His resurrection. We're children of God to those who believe in His name. The Spirit of God lives within us. The world should look at us. We are light. We are salt. We are light shining in darkness. We should go everywhere we go, and people should be so attracted to the way that we live our life and we conduct ourselves and we behave that they want to know what is it about you? What is going on? It's Jesus Jesus Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. I've come to know Him as my Savior and He's changed my life and my life's never been the same since. 25 years later, speaking of me personally, my life has never been the same. 25 years ago, everyone was waiting for it to wear off. You know, like, you know, the the, the, the the, the light will get dimmer. You know, I may have got dimmer, but the light's getting brighter. (laughs) You know, we need to look at that and understand to be an eyewitness of His glory. Think about that. John writes in 1 John 1, 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What we have seen, what we have heard, what we have handled. They touched Him. They hugged Him. They ate with Him. They spent time with Him. Peter knows, Thomas knows what it meant to handle Him. He, you know, He said, I just, I'm not, until I touch you, I'm not going to believe that you raised from the dead. He said, come on. Anyone, that's okay. I believe you. I believe you. I see you. John said the same thing. And he was born witness. And his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. You know, I've been in meetings. First-hand meetings. Spent much time in meetings and meeting with people. And I'll hear from someone who relates that meeting as if they were there because of what they heard from someone else who heard from someone else who heard from someone else. And they're running around sharing with it like they were actually there. And I go, man, you know, you sound like you have a whole bunch of credibility, but you don't have any because what you're sharing is not true because I was there and you weren't. You know, and that's the danger here. There are a whole bunch of people that were running around telling people and writing about what Jesus did, what he accomplished, what he did, what he said. But you know what? Not everything that was said was true. And so eyewitnesses even sometimes aren't very reliable or accurate witnesses. They think they see something, but that's not really what they saw. And so what happened was an historian, the historian has to deal with the fact that, you know what, you may have somebody who is an eyewitness, but either consciously or unconsciously, they're not telling the truth about the account that was there. How do you protect from that? Well, the answer is very simple. That when you hear somebody saying something that's not true, even though that they were there and you were there, all it takes is you go like this. You know what? That's not true. And here's why it's not true. Didn't you hear what he said? Didn't you hear what he said? Did you hear what he said? And everyone goes, yes, 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 yes. And that person goes, oh, then maybe I'm wrong. Exactly. See, the apostles confronted the critics and basically threw it back to them and said, you know what? You yourselves know. You know what Jesus did. You know what Jesus said. Even the critics who wanted to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even the critics who wanted to deny the miracles of Jesus Christ, the signs and the wonders, wonders, even those critics were confronted face to face and said, "Now you know that's not true. You saw him open the eyes of the blind. You saw him open the ears of the deaf. You saw him raise Lazarus from the dead." You saw him do these things, and there is never an answer for that. They could not refute it. So the historian looks at those eyewitness accounts who have much more credibility than second and third-hand information. And even the eyewitness accounts have to all be in sync knowing that everybody's on the same page about what they had seen, what they had heard. The gospel of Luke is an open account that you and I can examine as if it's an autopsy report saying, you know what? I have carefully examined this. And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those from the very beginning eyewitnesses, the whole idea of being an eyewitness gives tremendous credibility. We need to recognize and understand the weight that should be put on those who were there. Now, just don't believe the eyewitness report of one person. Talk to several people who are eyewitnesses. Combine what you now heard, and then you've got the truth. And that's what Luke has done. Inspired by the Spirit of God, he examined all the facts, and here's the truth. When somebody says to you, how do you know if the Bible is accurate? How do you know if the Bible is reliable? How do you know if the Bible is trustworthy? You can say with confidence, I know that the Bible is historically reliable just as I know that any other historical event is reliable. By the bibliographical test that's... that's that's administered to it by the internal evidence and the external evidence, we can look at it and say, you know what? The same way that you know World War II happened if you didn't live and you weren't part of it, the same way you know World War I happened, the same way you knew the Civil War in America happened, the same way that you knew any other event in history has happened, is the same way that we can place credibility on the Word of God. It is accurate. It is reliable. And then the question that you ask is a very simple one, and I always love to ask this one, and that's this. Now, why is it that you say that the Bible is not accurate? What is it about the Bible that troubles you? What is it about the Bible that you say is inaccurate? Show me and we'll look at that together. And the majority of times you will find people that we deal with on a regular basis have never sat down to investigate anything they claim to believe. They have heard ignorant statements passed on from generation to generation and they continue to promote that type of ignorance. Ignorance. And that's why the Bible says that we need to examine the faith. We need to be prepared to give an answer for the defense of the of the defense of the hope that is within us. We need to know Scripture. The second important word in this introduction is found in the word, and servants of the word, or ministers of the word, have handed them down to us. That word is a word in Greek which means an under rower on a boat. In a hospital, the under rower is an intern, And the apostles were the great physician's interns. Isn't that great as a medical term? Jesus Christ is the great physician, and the apostles were the interns of Jesus Christ who were taught by him directly, and they handed that word of mouth down traditionally until the Bible was given to us in written form. The point of Luke's introduction is that His inspired record of the life of Jesus Christ is trustworthy and will give assurance to his reader. He mentions him specifically, the name Theophilus. I've written this down in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, excellent Theophilus is a a title, the, the word means lover of God. Historians believe that the name was given to this Roman official, Theophilus, at the time of his baptism. That when he was born again and put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he changed his Roman name from whatever his given name was to Theophilus, lover of God. Isn't that great? And now he is teaching this lover of God that the things that he had been taught, he can know that they were true. The word taught is catechism we get, which is a systematic teaching of theology. He's saying that you may know that your theology is accurate. Before moving on, as we look at the rest of this particular passage, a question I have for you is this. How much assurance do you have? Do you know without any question in your mind that you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know that there's a point in time where you recognized you were a sinner and that you trusted in Jesus Christ's death on the cross and the power of his resurrection, that you would be justified by faith? Are you sure that you're born again, that you're a child of God to those who believe in his name? Do you know that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that in it everything is trustworthy and reliable? You know, I feel, I feel sorry for those persons who don't know or are not sure of these things because God wants us to know that for a certainty, I feel sorry for those who wobble back and forth and aren't really sure of whether if they died they would go to heaven or not because they're confused about, you know, works and performance and failure and all these things and they don't understand the clear teaching of Scripture. I feel sorry for those people. You know, people say, well, I guess I don't have enough faith. It's not about faith because faith comes from a hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's not a question of enough faith. It's a question of enough knowledge and information about Scripture. That you would know the word of God. That's why we are committed here as a church to teach the word of God. Whether it's from the pulpit, whether it's from our Bible studies that meet in homes or wherever it is. We're committed to teach the word of God so so that you might know the exact truth of the things that you have been taught. So that you can have peace and confidence and assurance in your relationship with God that it's all about him and not about us. Oh man, a free up. It'll free you up. And the first event, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, the first event that Luke captures for us, as you can imagine, a doctor is just amazed by the birth of a child. And he captures for us the birth of John the Baptist. And not only the birth, but all the circumstances surrounding it. As a physician, you'll notice as we go through the study that Luke is captivated by how God deals with humanity. Just God's compassion for humanity. And the story of John the Baptist is a story that shows the importance of faith in God's word. Of believing God and taking him at his word. That God's word is trustworthy and reliable. And that we are to believe what he says and trust him completely to do what he has promised. And so as we look at this in your notes, you'll find that the first thing that I want to share with you is, number one, the circumstances that led up to his birth. The birth of John the Baptist. In verse 5, we read this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. As we see this passage, we're introduced to a godly couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth, who give us insight as to the role that faith plays in our relationship with God. Specifically, let's look at seven facts relating to Zacharias' faith. Number one, in verse five, we recognize that his religious ancestors, his religious ancestors did not guarantee his faith. You know, we look at according to First Chronicles twenty-four, Ebagiah was the eighth and twenty-four orders of priests on duty in the temple, and each order served twice a year for a week. It was a tremendous honor to be a priest, and even more so to serve in the temple when they did. And the greatest honor of all was a once-in-a-lifetime honor of lighting incense in the temple. And we're gonna see that all this takes place in this passage. And so and then there was the daughter and, and then his wife was a daughter of Aaron, who was also a priest. And a spokesperson for Moses. And if any man or couple could have claimed family background was all that it took to have a right relationship with God, it was this man and his wife. And yet the Bible tells us without personal faith that it's impossible to please God. It doesn't matter what our ancestry is. It doesn't matter how godly our parents or grandparents were. It doesn't matter of their personal faith in Jesus Christ. The reality of it is, is that, you know what, you and I have to make that same decision ourselves. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians was at a point in his life where he thought, man, you know what, I've got it made because of the family that I was born into. He writes in Philippians 3, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it's also a safeguard for you. When he's saying, man, you can't get enough of the truth. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers and false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in our flesh. He although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Just like Zacharias and, 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 and his wife were found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Men and women, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't live on your ancestry. You can't live on past laurels of those who in the past had some type of religious experience. The reality of it is, is that you and I have to come to a point where we recognize our personal need to be forgiven by God. And that I might be found, as Paul says, in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in him. He says, in my Lord, in Christ. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away, all things become new. The Bible tells us indirectly that you know what? A godly heritage is no substitute for personal faith in the works of Jesus Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection. God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Some of you know that. You know that you walked with the Lord and your children have walked from Him. But if you train them in the way that they should go, then let us trust God that in the end, when they're old, they will not depart from it. That we trust in the righteousness of God and the promises that God has made. But you know because you walk with God, it's no guarantee that your children will walk with God or that their children will walk with God. Each generation is held personally accountable to come to the cross Confess their sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin and the, and the power of His resurrection. Back to the Gospel of Luke. So we learn that Zacharias' religious ancestors didn't guarantee his faith. Number two, we learn that his godly actions or his works did not guarantee his faith. Notice that in verse 6. We see that he was busy doing what was right before God. When it says that he was blameless and and that he was righteous in the sight of God, blameless in the commandments and requirements, that meant he lived to the degree that he understood the teachings of God, but it doesn't mean he wasn't a man who had sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he lived according to the light that he had. He did the best that he could knowing what God's standard was. And yet he still needed to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of his sin. And those who live according to the light, God will bring more light. We will see all throughout here that those who live to the light that they have, God will continue to reveal more light. And the greatest light is the light of the world, Jesus Christ, the only Savior from sin. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. Paul writes to the Ephesian church. Though walking blamelessly, he was not without sin, living to the light. And as we see that his godly actions, his works didn't guarantee his faith. Number three in verse seven. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were advanced in years. Number three is his advanced age did not guarantee his faith. In fact, we'll see that it was age that became an obstacle to faith. And what I have found from personal experience, and some of you may attest to this, the longer a person denies the free gift of God in Christ. The longer a person rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, the longer a person rejects forgiveness at the cross, the longer a person rationalizes and justifies his sin or her sin and says, I'll wait one day downstream. Who are we to presume upon the mercy of God? The older that one gets, the more set in one's ways and the more difficult that it is to hear the Spirit of God and their need for forgiveness. The majority of people who come to faith in Christ, according to statistics, whatever they're worth, are children and young people. That's why it's so important, men and women, to pass that baton on to the next generation. Because the longer they live in a cynical world or culture, the more confused they become as the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, come unto me as a child. A child can understand the need for forgiveness. A child can understand the free gift that's offered. A child doesn't read into everything. In fact, we have to teach children, don't take gifts from strangers. Why? Because it's within the heart of a child that say, yes, I'll take whatever it is that you're offering me. And when God comes and says, would you like to be forgiven of your sin? A child says, absolutely it 's a no brainer who wouldn 't want to be just the old bitter, cynical people will continue to reject Jesus Christ and the offer of forgiveness they 're the ones that are the hardest ones to reach, and i 'm just going to warn you as I read through scripture, there's a day at some point in time, and i don 't know when that is, and it 's in the providence of God, but God just seals over that heart, just seals it over. I have offered and offered and offered and you have rejected and rejected and rejected and that offer is off the table. Praise God, you and I don't know. And it's our responsibility to continue to share and to continue to help people see their need for forgiveness. But I'll tell you this, man, it's not real hard to see through Scripture hardened hearts. All we got to do is look at Pharaoh's life and say, man, what more did God have to do to get his attention? And it didn't make any difference because he didn't want God's attention. The religious leaders of Jesus' days, what else could Jesus do to get their attention that he was the Savior of the world, the long-awaited promised Messiah? What else did he have to do? He opened the eyes of the blind. He raised people from the dead. He fulfilled prophecy at every turn that he went. And those who knew Scripture knew what to look for, and he was performing it right in front of them. And they said, I don't care. I don't want to know. Why? Because the sin nature of man says, I don't need God. I'm my own God. And you will die and pay the penalty for your sin for all of eternity if you believe that. But a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, thou will not despise. Zacharias' advanced age didn't guarantee his faith. In fact, it was his age that became an obstacle in faith. Number four, in verses 8 through 10, we see that his priestly activity didn't guarantee his faith. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot that once in a lifetime experience to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. I share this with you because religious activity does not guarantee faith as we shall see. I know men who are in ministry who have never come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Priestly men, religious men who have never come to faith in Jesus Christ. Religion is no substitute for a relationship with God through Christ. It should be the motivation for all that we do after we come to faith. But you know what? Being religious isn't going to get you right with God. His religious activity, his priestly activity did not guarantee his faith. Notice at number five in verse 11, 12, even the angel's appearance did not guarantee his faith. It says, And an angel the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And, incest, and Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. Zacharias didn't know what to think. Think of this. 400 years of God's silence, broken in an instant in time, and Zacharias feared God's judgment, for angels often appeared at such times. But, praise God for verse 13, where it says, But, But the angel said to him, but in contrast to what Zacharias was thinking, uh uh-oh, a good day gone bad. (laughs) He's saying, but in contrast to what he was thinking, hey, I got a great, great announcement for you. But the angel's announcement did not produce faith. Verses 13 through 17, look at this. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts and the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Man, I'll tell you what, this is exciting stuff because it shows you that, that, that God answers specific prayer. This man and his wife had been praying their whole marriage for a child, and not just a child for a son. They prayed for a son, and you say, Well, how do you know they were praying for a son? Easy because God answered their prayer and said, This prayer you've been, you know, the, this petition, I'm gonna answer it. And you shall have a son. What was their prayer? We want a boy. You got him. But the announcement didn't produce faith. Think about this. John the Baptist was going to be the one, you know, for the first time in 400 years, God spoke directly to his people. Zachariah's prayer for the redemption of Israel, as we'll see in verse 68, the specific prayer to have a son has finally been answered by God, and not just any son, but the prophet who will point all to the Messiah. Remember, it was John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He pointed to Jesus. What he's being told is that your son will be the prophet, the forerunner of the Savior. Your son that you waited so long and God has answered your prayer will be the one who points people to Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. That's why John said when he pointed to Jesus, He must increase, I must decrease. He's the one we've all been waiting for. And he backed off the surface of human history and Jesus Christ took preeminence. And you think that, man, this is, you know, this is a good day. I don't know about you, but think about this. Once in a lifetime, he gets to burn incense and it's done randomly at Lot. And it just shows, you know, God's in control of everything, even the drawing of a lot. And and so God, here he is, he's in the temple, he's burning incense. He's going, man, this is a great day. This has been an honor I've waited for all of my life. And on top of that, an angel shows up and tells him, not only is that, it, it's like, this is a double lottery winner here. Not only that, but you know what? You're going to have a son, and the son's going to be the prophet who points people to the Savior. You're having a great day. This is awesome. Praise God, right, Zacharias? No. no. Yeah, but, but what? Verse 18. And Zacharias said, praise God. I can trust God because I can believe his word and I can believe his messenger. God's word is trustworthy. He said, hey, how do I know this is all true? Can you? I mean, oh, so man. Oh, so close. Just like Peter getting out of the boat. Lord, I love you. I love you. I love you. Man, I'm right there behind you. But what about John? You know, so close. Zachariah is so close. And he goes, well, how do I know I can believe you? That's what he's saying. How do I know I can believe you? Number seven, his affliction was aimed at producing faith. You know what he said? He said, give me a sign. Give me a sign that what you're telling me is true. How many of you ever said that? God, give me a sign. I just want a sign. Just give me a sign. God's like, man, you got my whole word right there in front of you. Read it. Everything I say is trustworthy, reliable. What else do you need? You need a sign. Here's a sign. You're not going to be able to talk. Talk. Look at it, you know, he goes, Man, I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. Give me a sign. How we know we're gonna have kids. You know what? Look at us, things aren't looking good. No such thing as Viagra. Things aren't going good here. <laughs> Hadn't heard any of that stuff yet? You know, and yet at the same time, this is the same guy that knew the word of God. Did, have a, did Abraham and Sarah have the same problem? Yes. Was God limited by their abilities? No. What is he saying? He's saying, you know what? But that was them. This is me. Is it the same? Give me a sign. I don't believe you. So the angel said, okay, listen. I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Because you didn't believe my words which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. How's that for a sign? (laughs) It's your sign, brother. Man, I read this and I go, you know what? I don't think I'm asking for signs anymore. <laughs> it's like, don't. Be careful. You're going to get what you ask for sometimes. There's your sign. And what Gabriel's saying was this. I am Gabriel who spends time in the presence of God. I have got to witness some of the most incredible, awesome displays of the power of God. I am Gabriel and you're You. All right. Now, why would you believe you and not me as God's messenger of God's truth? I have seen the power of God. God is not limited in fulfilling his promises based on our inability to perform. In our weakness, his strength is perfected. But God, I can't perfect because God can. How can this be, Mary said? I can't have a child. I haven't been with a guy. Perfect. Because he will be born of a virgin. And we'll talk about that next time. For with God, all things are possible. Now notice this. As we wrap all this up. But when he came out, he was unable to speak. He left the temple. Look at this. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he, wasn't able, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Oh, man. This is, this is Pictionary. This is how the people got an idea from Pictionary. He came out. And he was like going... You know, I could just see him. Like, and people are going, this guy's a lunatic. You know, it's like, he couldn't talk. It was like the greatest news he ever heard. And he couldn't share with anybody because <laughs> he asked for a sign. I mean, can you imagine? This is great stuff. God just lays it out just like that. It's like, there it is. I mean, and that's what he was doing. He was like, ah, can I tell people? Well, if you wouldn't ask for a sign, <laughs> you could have just told them. And for nine months, oh his wife had to love this. <laughs> and at the same time, how many times do you think she said, You know what? Answer me. Answer me. <laughs> what do you want for breakfast? <laughs> oh, man. There it is. The importance of faith in God's Word. And read these on your own when you get a chance. The next two points, because I always do this, and and, and people would actually take notes. I go, what was the number two and three thing? (laughs) Number two is the conception and birth of the child we see in verses 24 and 25. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. When he looked with favor upon me. You know what that word is? Grace. Grace. Unmerited favor from God. God chose them. Out of everybody on the face of the earth he could have chose. He chose them. And you know what? If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Out of everybody on the face of the earth. God has chosen you. By grace we're saved through faith. And not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us can boast. And lastly, in verses 59 through 66, read on your own. It has to do with the circumcision of the child. The circumcision of the child, it was a Jewish custom to put a child, a son, on a chair that was called the throne of Elijah with the hope that he might be the long-awaited prophet. Isn't that awesome? To see God's word fulfilled in your lifetime? Isn't it an exciting thing to see a person, you go, man, there is no hope for so-and-so. And to see that person ask God's forgiveness and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. To see that person born again, to see that person be transformed by God. Isn't it exciting to live in a time where we see scripture fulfilled in our very presence that's exactly what happened. Zacharias and Elizabeth trust in God's word. They said, You shall call him John. It led to astonishment and praise and trust in God. And all look forward to what God would do as they walk together in faith. In closing, I'm going to ask this question Do others see your faith in God? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, that you believe the word of God. I believe what God says, that it's accurate, that it's reliable, that it's trustworthy, because it it measures up against the historical uh, evidences and tests that we apply to all documents. That bibliographical test and also the internal and external evidence test, the eyewitnesses who saw it, who passed it along, inspired by God. You know, I believe God's word and it's trustworthy. Why don't you? We walk by faith and not by sight. Unfortunately, many in our day still seek signs from God. What kind of sign? What more could God do to demonstrate his existence and his love and his mercy? The religious leader said, You know what? I want a sign. And he said, You perverse generation. Always seeking signs from God. God, if you're really God, then let the angels win the World Series. Oh, and then I'll consider trusting and believing you. Oh, God, if you're really God. Oh, now it's the ducks. Let the ducks win the cup. If they kiss the cup, then I'll and then I'll consider your claims. Oh, God, if you're God. Oh, God, show me a sign. Oh, God, you know what? Well, let her say yes when I ask her out. Oh, God. Oh, oh, signs. Sign. You know what? Jesus said, you know what? Just stop asking for signs. The greatest sign is the sign of Jonah. Jesus used it and said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, and then God raised him up from the belly of the whale, so Jesus Christ will be in the bowels of the earth, and three days later, he'll be raised again. The greatest sign to man is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You and I don't need little pathetic, pitiful signs in our life in order for us to have faith in God, whose word is trustworthy. Trust him. Rely upon him. His word is trustworthy and reliable. Those little pathetic signs we ask for are nothing compared with the signs that God has already given us. And don't forget what Zacharias got out of asking for a sign. You want a sign, brother? I'll give you a sign. That's a new living version. (laughs) Even when things don't seem to make sense, we can trust in him. In closing, Marshall Shelley, who suffered the deaths of two of his children, writes in Leadership. He says, even as a child, I loved to read, and I quickly learned that I would most likely be confused during the opening chapters of a novel. New characters were introduced, and desperate, seemingly random events took place. Subplots were complicated and didn't seem to make any sense in relation to the main plot. He says, but I learned to keep reading. Why? Because you know that the author, if he or she is good, will weave them all together by the end of the book. Eventually, each element will be meaningful. At times, such faith has to be a conscious choice. Even when I can't explain why a chromosomal abnormality develops in my son, which prevents him from living on earth for more than two minutes, and even when I can't fathom why our daughter has to endure two years of seizure and profound retardation and continually seizures, continual seizures, I choose to trust that before the book closes, the author will make things clear. Amen? Amen. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for the faith. You tell us that we walk by faith and not by sight. And God, I pray for those who are here today who are not sure of their relationship with you, who are leaning on so many things, whether it's their own personal works, whether it's their ancestry, whatever it is, that today would be the day that they come to personal faith in Jesus Christ. Even where they sit or as they listen to these words, that they'll pray a simple prayer, God, save me. For I am a sinner. I'm not perfect. I need forgiven. And I trust and believe that in your great love, you sent Jesus Christ to die upon the cross for my sins and raised him from the dead. And I believe in him as my Lord and Savior. And I believe in the power of his resurrection. I believe what you say because your word is trustworthy, reliable, that by believing in him, I shall be saved. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the wages of sin are death. But the free gift of God, according to your word, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.